Good evening. This is the Goethe Report. On the program tonight, we are joined by Dr. P. Dr. P is a philosopher, academic, writer, poet, artist, metaphysician, man about town, and now, it would seem, a musician. He joins us tonight to discuss his new album, Alter Egos. Dr. P, welcome to the Goethe Report. Oh, it's an honor to be your debut guest, sir. Well, it's an honor to have you. You're, you're coming to us, of course, via the internet from Toronto, is it? Yeah, um, I think uh, the uh, uh, Postal Service considers me to be in York now, mm. um, which, which is what? Is this one of the boroughs of, of Greater Toronto? I, I, I lost track of how it's all geographically. Um, um, no, I mean, I guess it's the Postal Service. They, they know where you are. Like, they are the ultimate authority, I think, on your location. You know what? Yeah, you got to give them... A little bit of precedence for naming which 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 town I'm in. Yeah, maybe we should just you know. I mean, I don't speak for any particular country, but I I would say that can, where you be Canada, United States, Switzerland, Germany, whatever. I would just defer to the postal service for everything for where people are, where people are going, freight logistics, the census, so on and so forth. They seem to have a better grip on it than most of us. And I must for, say, though, um, I, I, we shouldn't, uh, though, squander our... Pardon me? Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, and for, and for um, sexual advice. Yes, yes, most certainly. Because you, you always hear, of course, about the classic case of, of mothers sneaking off with the postman. Right. Like, there must be a reason. Yeah. Well, the, the exogamous male, I think. Yes. Yeah. Now, you're, you're a busy man, Dr. P. It's been a great struggle to get you on the program. I, I imagine you probably get tons of requests. People thinking you're a medical doctor want you to talk about the coronavirus. It fills your inbox. But I, I was listening to you the other day because you've been all over the media. You're on with uh, Calls with Gene, with, with my good friend Gene Simmons. And there was, there's a thread there I think we should pick up that I think would be a, a good starting point. You, you had mentioned that you described yourself as being on the margins of academia. What, what, what exactly do you mean by that? I mean, first, I guess, give us, give us your academic background and then tell us how you exist on the margins. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, philosophy itself is a little bit marginal now, I think, to the you know the the modern university uh i mean it's it's the original department but it's um sort of this i don't know it's uh it's its role is maybe even a little bit intrinsically marginal to kind of hover at the margins of intellectual activity and to um talk about the rules and uh, sort of like a sideline. <laughs> it's 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 a sideline um, sort of um, perspective to other intellectual activity. It it can it can have that dimension. You know, the idea of philosophy being a handmaid into science. But even relative to the philosophy department, I think I've been a little bit marginal. I mean, part of that is just the uh, maybe somewhat un uninteresting reason that I've I've been uh, you know a sessional instructor all my time in academia um, so teaching courses a little bit at the mar you know um, never at the center of departmental activity and uh, I feel like marginal maybe maybe more more to the point and more to today's topic marginal and that 
I remember after I finished my, uh, you know, you know, my my dissertation back in two thousand and three, I I said I, I I don't ever want to write an essay again. Kind of an ominous thing for someone to to think or say, just as they're finishing their PhD and heading out into the academic job market, right? <laughs> where I assume I lied for two years, saying I was looking forward to writing more papers and that kind of thing. But yeah, um, anyway, they saw through my lies and didn't hire me for anything tenure track, but. Uh, uh, took me on as a teacher. I yeah, yeah uh, marginal because um, I don't feel comfortable necessarily writing, um, you know, uh, papers in the, in, in this. I don't want to say standard or traditional mold. There's no not quite any such thing. But um, well, I mean, that's the thing is philosophy itself. It, it, I mean, the idea of philosophy as being an academic pursuit is a fairly recent idea. Like you go back to the origins of philosophy, many of the greats of philosophy, you go to the Plato's, the Aristotle's, whatever. Of course, they had some form of education and so on, but it wasn't the academy as we think of it today. Not as we think of it today, um, true. Uh, though, in a sense, the academy begins in philosophy, right? The academy was was where Plato taught, but it was it was a very different, um, it was a very different, yeah, kettle of fish. I think, actually, uh, you know, if I if I want if I really wanted to. Put myself in the center of the philosophical tradition. I, I would say, you know, in writing, in writing more in a poetic vein, as I often do, that really takes takes us back to the origins of Western philosophy. I mean, the, the earliest works of Western philosophy were, uh, I think, to our eyes and ears, something poetic and aphoristic rather than essayistic. Um, even Aristotle, by the time of Aristotle, you know, 300 years into the Western philosophical tradition, you've got, um, uh, we have it that he wrote dialogues, which are lost to history. I mean, that's, for the academic, that would be like finding the Ark of the Covenant, I think, mm. finding the lost works of Aristotle, which apparently he was a great stylist and wrote wrote, wrote brilliant dialogues, uh, you know, but uh, I think most of what we have from Aristotle today reads a little bit like I mean, it seems familiar to a modern academic because it sounds a little bit like an essay or lecture notes. Mm -hmm. Maybe that is what we have with Aristotle. We have lecture notes from students at um, at his at his academy. Right. I mean, but, you uh, mentioned you mentioned the poetic. What what is the appeal of the poetic to you? Like over the traditional essay that you would find in in philosophy today? Yeah, it's it's. Uh, it's a great question. I feel I've thought about this a lot over the years and um, um, arrive at different answers, but hmm, what do I feel like saying right now? You know, you want to express yourself. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, I mean, I think we all have poetry in us and um, you don't want to, you don't want to just write essays, but I guess, mm hmm. I, I, I do I do believe that uh, how you say something is can can be as as important to what's communicated as 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 the actual propositions on the page, and sometimes the most important things to communicate um, uh, are not through like a, a series of logically linked propositions as we have in an essay, but. Um, you know, commands and questions and jokes and uh, dream scraps of dream journals and you know you you put yourself on the page you 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 get your soul into a certain state and then you try to express that, put that on the page and 
hope that hope that that affects the reader, gives them some kind of snapshot of what you were at the time you wrote. I just always felt, I mean, I think for some people, the essay, they find a, you know, they're brilliant essayists and they're quite at home with the essay and they, their voice really does come through in something that looks like a fairly traditional or recognizable essay. But for a lot of us, a lot of the time, the essay is a bit of a straitjacket, you know, mm. it's, it's, um, it has certain unstated expectations and some quite stated and, um, yeah, I have to think more about that question. Right. I mean, now, of course, like you've you've now moved on to the realm of music. Like, how did you I mean, there is obviously, of course, quite a link between poetry and music. But what made you want to take the poetry that you'd produced and put it to words or put it to music? Pardon me. I think around the time the album got up and running, I, I was taking a lot of my words and trying to um, vocalize them in one way or another. Um, so I, I guess in summer of 2019, um, I started exploring the Toronto open mic scene, which unfortunately now is completely shut down. But mm. um, <laughs> I, was, I was on a bit of a roll. I was really, really kind of getting into it. I mean, getting over stage fright and... Uh, starting to find a bit of a voice and a style, I think. I was doing the, uh, exploring the poetry open mic scene, and then a bit of the slam scene, too. I did, I did a, f a few slams, and, uh, and then also, I, most, you know, just before COVID shut everything down, I was going out to the comedy open mic nights and um, translating all these words into bits, you know. Uh, I, 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 had, I have all this writing, and a lot of it, with just a little bit of translation could be put into a, you know, spoken word piece or, um, it's like sort of like a poetic stand-up comedy. Is that what yeah, you yeah, for? I, yeah. I, yeah. I was doing like some of these just, you know, trim them down a bit and, and, um, you, you know, um, muster up something like a punchline every every 10 or 20 seconds and, mm -hmm. and uh yeah you, you got like i mean i have all these bits I, I i i mean i wasn't writing essays all these years i was writing bits you know little right. bits some of them quite aphoristic some of them more like paragraph sized chunks that mm -hmm. uh, have a kind of develop an idea often there's there's humor there and and some music or the poetry and so it just seemed natural to get out there and uh you know it's like you become you become the foster parent of that thing. I felt like maybe the writing itself was um, um, not coming to an end, but mm -hmm. there was there was definitely a period of my life where there was just I felt I had a lot to a lot to say, a lot to put down on paper, mm -hmm. and and I felt like maybe that was easing off a bit. You know, that it was a bit of a burden and also inspiration, but that was kind of fleeing the inspiration was fleeing and the burden was lifting and but i had all this writing and you know you just, at some point you, you get a bit of distance from it and you become more like a parent to that thing <laughs> and and you feel like you got to bring it into the world you know like get, get mm -hmm. your kids signed up for a good uh, good elementary school or take your words out and get them to the open mic and well that's and, the thing i mean it sounds yeah. like just you talking about like it sounds like this obviously this form of expressing I guess to, to put it loosely, your philosophical thoughts in the forms of poems, be they a more traditional kind slam and this, the, co the comedy bits, like whatever. Like it seems like this is sort of the 
the divide in philosophy, philosophy, like you have this form that you've been doing, that you've been taking to the people, as it were, be it at these clubs prior to COVID now via this album, versus the other tradition, I guess, or the, the, the academic tradition, you would say, of essay writing, where if you, I suppose you went, told someone, oh, I've got new piece of philosophy and say, okay, what is it? And you launch into a series of jokes, they probably wouldn't take you too seriously. It could be. Yeah, um, yeah apparently, uh, I think that's, uh, Aristotle, one of, the, one of the last works was a, a work on comedy. I mean, we have Aristotle on tragedy quite famously, um, but I guess he had a work on comedy, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, we, we don't have that or much of that, but uh, did, he, did he say something like, the most difficult thing about comedy is that nobody takes it seriously <laughs> <laughs> i think and I, yeah. he i don't know he might have said that with dead seriousness he i don't know i i like i like the i laugh at the idea of aristotle writing that or saying that and not realizing it it was itself a joke yes but, <laughs> but i mean that's the thing is it sounds like though i mean at least you as a as a producer of of the comedy like that it is a serious pursuit like this is you say you have all these words all these things you want to express and you like that's a very serious endeavor, regardless of how you choose to express yourself. I think so. Yeah, you know, like uh, if we get into the theory of theory of the joke, like what what a joke is, um, you know, there's often some kind of contradiction and a, a resolution of the contradiction, or a transcendence of it, or a elucidation of the contradiction. Often, a punchline is just. Uh, elucidating uh, or making obvious in an instant in a like satori moment a contradiction that had been inherent in the narrative of the joke and uh, for whatever <laughs> deep reasons probably going into the biological we go ah yes. you know when 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 we get get that and see that and so you know that's you can then start to see how that would be continuous with philosophical work of some kind you know, perceiving contradictions, elucidating them, and that, that kind of thing. I mean, I, I had a professor once, and I don't know if this was his view or just a view that he had read somewhere, but they had this theory of of why we laugh, and it was just simply that we laugh at, at a given situation because there's some sort of some sort of logical inconsistency or some sort of logical failing. Like, we normally expect A to B, but when we get A to F, we laugh. Mm-hmm. And it makes it, it laughter sort of seem like in that case, like kind of just just another version of gasping or screaming or expressing yeah. some some form of confusion or horror. But I, I don't see that at all. I think like with laughter, like you you cut through the fog of whatever the situation happens to be. And the laughter almost is a way of gauging like how far you've cut through. If you just get like a little <laughs> Or something you haven't gone that far but if you get someone who's killing themselves laughing red in the face gasping for breath grabbing the table for support like then you've gone much further you you've made your point and your point has been realized quite deeply i think even even slapstick you know i i wonder if it's amenable to this kind of theory <laughs> sometimes it's yeah. slapstick sometimes it's like the whole point of slapstick is that it's not 
amenable to theory at all. It's it's, mm-hmm. it's like maybe the best answer to, hey, that guy, why is it funny that uh, Charlie just slipped on a banana peel, you know? Yeah. Maybe the best answer to that is, because he slipped on a banana peel and felt, that's funny. Like it's like <laughs> well, yeah, well it, it is. I mean, it's such a preposterous thing. Like it's such an insane situation that of all things to trip you up, it's not ice. It's not you know some nasty person grabbing at your ankles. It's a banana peel that took you down. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. It does seem like the contradiction there is. I mean, we picture Charlie in some kind of suit and a bowler hat or whatever. You know, he's he's <laughs> he's, he's he's dignified man or man trying to be dignified, and then he's. Um, He's reduced to his simian past by the banana peel, you know, brought brought back to earth. His head is his head is aloft in contemplation and yes. quickly brought back to earth. So even there, there's like a contradiction, um, smashed or elucidated, or you know, there's. Well, let me ask you this: moving forward with the album, who is Jeff Pye? What's his role in all of this? Ah, he's he's the other half of Doctor P. Yeah, yeah. You know, I can't remember who came up with. I th- it might have been Jeff's idea to give this project the moniker Dr. P. And of course, one of the connections is, is you know, me, the, the philosophy doctor. But it's also, you know, Pi, P-Y-E, Jeffrey mm. Pi. And, um, you know, he's, he's a kind of like, it's like a musical scientist over there in his little studio in Montreal. So, yeah, I, I like to think of Dr. P as the moniker for that project. And um, Jeffrey Pye is, uh, he's a, you know, he's a national treasure. Um, he's a Canadian musician, producer. He's been producing music under the moniker Yellow Jacket Avenger going all the way back to the early 90s, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, since he was 15 or 16, um, coming up in the Ottawa region. And uh, he's been in Montreal for a number of years now, um, making making you know his own records, but also producing records, including he, he produced uh, two of uh, uh, Julian's last th- three records. Uh, right, you Julian. mentioned Julian. Julian Bellard, is it? He uh, plays. Yeah, I th- plays I the guitar. The are, yeah, the L's are silent. I think uh, it's, yeah, it's uh, a, a, a French uh, Bayard. But, mm. uh, um, yeah, he's. He, I mean, um, Julian and Jeff are, are kind of. Uh, they've had a long-standing musical partnership, and um, going going back to Ottawa, where they met, there was a little kind of indie indie music scene, I guess, that was quite thriving in Ottawa, and that's mm. where Julian's band came up, and Jeff came up in that scene too. And uh, yeah, uh, Julian played guitar on the album. He he brought his. He was like the hired gun, not that not, yes. that, not that he demanded money, but he just brought his uh, guitar in here one day and plugged it in and. Uh, music of a very high order just flowed out very quickly, mm. and uh, very quickly we had uh, this whole new dimension to five of the five of the albums, ten ten tracks. Yeah. Right. I mean, I'm thinking like you talk about Doctor P. Of course, P could be for for Paul. Your first name could be for Pi and Doctor. Of course, relating to your academic background. And interesting, it ties up into something I was I was going to bring up at some point. I, I of course have brought this album around. I feel like I'm as I share this album with people that I'm like some Polish dissident with a pirated copy of Valet's works on UFOs, handing them out to people, saying, "Oh, this thing, you know, it's you're never gonna you're not gonna hear, see something like hear something quite something like this." And I showed it to one friend of mine, and he 
took one look at it, looked at the album cover, and he said, "What? What is this? Who is this? What's the meaning behind all of it?" And and for those of you, of course, who haven't seen it, you can see and listen to the album at pbali.bandcamp.com. But I will endeavor just to describe the artwork for you because I think it is important. There's you. That is you, correct? That is me. Yes. Yeah. You're sitting in what looks like an abandoned classroom on, on a desk <laughs> chair. I'm not sure. Uh, and you're wearing a, a gray house coat. I yeah, think. That's, that's is that what my, it is? Uh, that's my blankie. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. That's, that's me at home, you know? Like, that's, I, I just wrap a blanket around me and, and wander around the house. And that, it, it's funny. You, you, you pointed out that it looks like a classroom, an abandoned classroom. It's just my, my little work area, right? You know, where oh. I do a lot of the work on the album. And, um, it's just it's just a wooden bookshelf behind me that was pretty that was pretty empty at that time, um, so it looks like a, I don't know the back of a chalkboard or something back oh, of a roll, rollable chalkboard. Because I was thinking and returning a bit to which about like being a, on the margins of academia, I, I I was thinking that this was part of sort of the comment of the album. Like here you are, you, you don't see a professor as you dressed in a bathrobe for class, even even doing these COVID <laughs> Zoom lectures. Hey, at least usually put a shirt on, and here you are like in this what I thought to be was a classroom that looked like it had seen better days and that that in itself was a was a comment like now I like that you like speaking as you here thing like now I have to go out I have to make this album based on this poetry that the the academy had no interest in and now this is this is this is your essay isn't it like your album in a way uh I guess so yeah you know it's like it's like my uh um late thesis project or something you know, mm-hmm. finally it's like the, the doctor is the designation you get on completion of the album you're finally finished yes thesis, you know like, <laughs> that's right yeah uh it's funny I, I i did we we uh we're making a little music video for one of the tracks for um holy roller and uh, mm. um jeff got me to go out and film myself dancing a little bit <laughs> and, uh, it's i'm sure it's Ridiculous. Where are you uh, dancing? Um, I, some of it's at, at Ryerson campus. You know, I just I, I went. There that's where you that, teach. Um, yeah, that's right, Ryer, Ryerson in mm-hmm. down, downtown Toronto, and just went down there and set up my little Nikon on a tripod and put my headphones on and played the track and and uh, and uh, bared my bared my soul for the lens. So I think Jeff's cutting that video as we speak. Ah, and, uh, very good. YouTube. I mean, we may as well, I mean, seeing as you mentioned Holy Roller, we may as well move into some of the songs on the album. We may as well start start with that, seeing as you're saying you're doing a uh, a music video for it. Now, now, I would say that this album, I would say overall, like, it is not a angry or menacing album, I, I believe. Because like, you've got, of course, a mix in many of these songs of spoken word and song. Mm-hmm. But but neither of them seem like they're of a hectoring or a lecturing tone or anything. But there are. I mean, there is a there is an element I think though of anger in Holy Roller, especially in the spoken word. Like you really hit us there. Like when the piano and the organ come in and then bang, and you say, "All along we've been singing Hallelujah wrong." <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, that's, that's quite the accusation. Yeah, though you know, it's uh, I did I didn't make the addressivity in um in that song always clear there there's like a dialogue going on there maybe that's you know going back to your question about why why a song and poem rather than essays you know an interesting thing about songs is you can you're allowed to swim in confusion sometimes about certain things like who is speaking Mm -hmm. and who's being addressed 
Whereas well, usually in an essay, it's very, it's supposed mm. to be very clear who's speaking. You know, in the byline, you get the author's name and who's mm. being addressed. Uh, you know, the audience of this particular journal or whatever. But right. in a song, uh, you know, we find ourselves often asking who's who's speaking right now and who are they speaking to. Well, I mean, and, it's interesting you say that because that's certainly something I was wondering. Because the song begins quite, I'd say, on a pretty calm tone. You have yourself, you're singing, or there's there's somebody, whoever this person is, they're singing about. Like show me what, show me what I know. Like wh- what's going on there? Like who is who is showing who what? Yeah, that's 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 um, that's that's the uh, that's the key question for sure. The literal origin of this song was, uh, I guess, just like uh, my notes on an encounter with a wise old man. Mm. I met a met a wise. I met the I met the wise old man. You know the archetype. Right. And uh, and who and was he? Um, he was a, a man named Stefan I met in a Yorkville Starbucks, and we, mm. we, we, we arranged to meet once more in a different Yorkville Starbucks. Uh, this was back in the summer of 2009. And uh, yeah, it was like 20 minutes of conversation probably in total that just really, I feel, changed, changed me. In, in what ways? way? Like, what, what did he say to you? Well... Some of it's some of it's in the song. So some of it is me, I guess, um, voicing Stefan. But mm. I, you know, it's more. Uh, I mean, there were things he said. I I feel that every single thing he said to me was prophecy mm. at, at many different scales of interpretation. Some of them very specific and personal and near future and then some of them a little bit more like epic apocalyptic mm. and um but uh this guy stefan um <laughs> it, it was it was it was more a sense I, th- I think like this very uncanny sense that he knew me mm-hmm. i don't want to say he knew me better than i know myself but it was like he really did seem to know some things about me that i hadn't quite noticed yet and this was and a stranger. Was, this was just someone you encountered by seemingly by chance. Yeah, he's a stranger, but it's it's one of those strange where you look up and he's staring at you, smiling like uh, um, um, he's been waiting um, for this moment, which, right. which he knew would arrive. Right? It was like this kind of destined feel. It's like it had all the markings, or uh, you know, of a, this kind of destined teacher-student encounter. That it's mm. like this this has to happen once a lifetime, you know, yes. in every incarnation. You gotta meet him and he's gonna tell you some things. And it's like the the function of the wise old man in the narrative is to always to to let you know about the quest, right? Like, first of all, you're in a you're on a quest. Yes, you're mm. in the story <laughs> and you're at that point of the quest now, you know, in the RPG where you meet right. the uh, the old tavern keeper turns out to be a retired adventurer and he's he's got the old broken sword you can put together, or he yes. he knows you know what the next stage of the quest is and he knows more and and one of the things he knows is that we are in a story <laughs> we are it's like he's waking me up to that kind of mm. it's like kind of a shamanic archetypal narr- narrative based interpretation of reality mm. and um really got me to take seriously the possibility that a kind of narrative interpretation of reality is in its own way as deep as like a physics-based interpretation. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, it's just as plausible to me that the ultimate nature of reality is story. And it's not an absurd thesis for me now that, mm-hmm. you know, if, if, if you want to, if, you know, if you ask what's going on, 
actually I lean more towards something like a certain kind of story is going on rather than molecules in motion, you know. So, yeah, he woke woke me up out of my uh, phys- physicalist slumbers, I guess. And <laughs> and just and and you started to I guess divine all this simply simply from his smile, simply from the way that he looked at you, like he, he hadn't spoken a word. There was there was definitely a lot that got communicated just by gesture and uh, mm-hmm. and and look, but no, there were some very specific things <laughs> he said and too, and uh, things that um, made yeah. sense at the time, or were these things that as as time went on after your encounter, you you went, my God, like he said X and then X happened. Yeah, a lot a lot of it, um, a lot of it was confirmed later. You know, a lot of it was, oh my God, that's what that meant. <laughs> can, can you give us an <laughs> that's example? So, so specific. Um, see well uh here's here's one example i don't know if this is the best example but um um just to give you a flavor of of the kind of thing that was going on at this time with me (laughs) in the wake of this encounter Mm -hmm. um the last the last thing he said to me uh you know at the end of our second meeting i think i'd even like I'd got up to leave. It was a little table outside, uh, outside the uh, Starbucks. This was in, like, I think, June or July of 2009. And I got up to walk away. And he said, oh, and Paul, the words will come to you um, while you're sleeping. Mm. And you should remember that these words are already written. <laughs> and then he smiled or laughed a little bit. And of course, that's vague enough that any writer at some point will confirm that, you know, <laughs> at some point they're going to yes. wake up in the middle of the night and they're going to write something down and then realize three years later that Goethe had already said something similar or, <laughs> yes. you know, Hume had already thought something mm-hmm. similar. But, you know, it's uh, um, a couple of weeks later, I, I, I went to New York. I flew to New York. I just had this, I don't know, you know, it was like a free time of my life. Just had the sense I should visit the Big Apple once in my life, yeah. just you know, and uh, flew down. But it was also this kind of—I guess it was like this kind of—just uh, felt like a bit of a pilgrimage uh, mm-hmm. connected to 20th century literature. I mean, I remember at one point I walked over and just touched the New Yorker building, you know, just like, yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, you know, probably thinking of J.D. Salinger and the Catcher in the Rye, but. And uh, like like Holden, you know, I think it was it was my time to it was it was, it was my uh, Holden Caulfield weekend or just to, my lost weekend to just wander around the streets of New York, and yes. whatever you know. Um, and uh, but I had I had this very uncanny dream in in the New York hotel room in Koreatown where I was staying, and uh, just woke up kind of in, in a sweat, and I had just come out of a dream. And the dream was, it was quite vivid. It was, it was uh, just like a, um, I was a lens close focused on a page. And I think the lens was sort of panning over the writing that was emerging on the page. Mm. Or maybe even it was the right, actually, apropos of the prophecy, it was like the writing was already there, but the 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 focus of the lens was moving over the page and then catching it. I you know for me it was like I was in a blizzard driving through a blizzard and I was just seeing two feet ahead of me and getting a word at a time but this lens was kind of moving over the page 
and I woke up and, and ran to the, ho- you know, the hotel desk and wrote it, wrote it down on the stationery there. And, um, in, I was still in kind of the fog of the, the, the dream state, you know, where I thought, even as I was writing it down, you know, half awake at the hotel desk, that this was just a, uh, Don DeLillo passage, mm. a passage from a Don DeLillo novel. And there, it was really important that I write it down. Uh, I'm not sure why I thought it was important that I should write it down if it was already in a Don DeLillo novel. But my, my experience of the dream was that I was getting a glimpse of this kind of rare Don DeLillo passage or something, I yes. guess. And then I, I got a bit rushed and wrote it down. And then as I was kind of coming to full consciousness, I realized this is not a, this is, well, I guess you can't know for sure, but I, I, I realized this was just something I'd concocted. Hmm. But... It was it was really really good. It was one of the best things I'd ever written, you know. Yes. And and I, I you know I had this. I, so what's the connection to the to the Stefan statement? You know, it was interesting because because I mean the it's like the way he said it. He it was clear he didn't mean it quite literally. He didn't mean you are going to write plagiarized works when you wake up in the middle of the night. He meant right. something. It, 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 there was a deeper message there about the very nature of the creative act of writing, which had to do with. Um, that there's a sense in which all great writing is rediscovery, all great production is rediscovery of something that's already there and is bigger than you, the individual creator of it, and, and that you're at your best when you're letting something through that may as well be written by someone else, right? It's right. like, it's like that. I mean, that's it's like what I was talking about earlier, where where when you get some distance on the writing, it's 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 like somebody else wrote it. Mm-hmm. I, I look at some of the stuff that I wrote uh, years ago, and I feel like. I, I can't write that. I, I, like, who who wrote that in a way? You know, it's so. It's, right. You know, there was. It's not prophecy. It's not. It's not like Stefan said anything that in that particular case that was like proof of um, prognostication or anything like that. Mm-hmm. In a way, it's better than that. It's like. Um, it's just like the way I think about prophecy is. I mean, I think I, I do believe in prognostication. Also, I, I do think that can happen and has happened. But, but I think actually prophecy is is more to do with what is always going on. <laughs> and then, incidentally, it's about the future, but it's also about the past and it's about the present. It's about the deep archetypal structure of what's always going on. And so, the you know, the wise old man is hopefully giving you those insights into the, the structure mm-hmm. of the situation. And it's going to be borne out in your future experience. It's also going to make sense of the past and, and the deep deep presence so anyway that wasn't a great example of uh, sure prophecy but, but i mean it's interesting though. like it made me think of a, a line a couple lines from the song like you say on parting he said we could meet again or he said we could make this more interesting yeah and isn't right. that that seems to be like this is the more interesting than your yeah. traditional prophecy like on such and such a day such and such will happen or, or what have you yeah yeah that was um that that would take us into the more interesting examples of actual kind of like synchronicities and prophecies where you know i what he was saying there what i what i took him to be saying there was we can keep meeting if you want in physical reality in meet space mm. if you want if you if you know we can arrange a third coffee date <laughs> you know we could sit across literally from a table from each other and move our faces at each other and, uh, you, you know, impinge on each other's eardrums. and Or we can make this more interesting, meaning we can move this to this almost like astral 
level where where the teaching will continue but it will come from uh larger media systems you know that is mm. that the, the teaching can come through these can inhabit these larger systems than a single body and uh, uh in a way in a way you know the medium is the message or some some messages really need a big screen or a big voice or a big system to communicate them and so it's it's not just it would be fun to talk to each other um indirectly through these through these um linkages and uh emissary. i mean it sort of sounds like like philip k dick like in uh in radio free abelmuth you know in, in how god is communicating via the pop song or in, yeah. in Vallis, which of course which was the rewrite of that i believe it's a film yeah yeah absolutely um it was very much like that i mean i mean um i guess the most if we're talking about the the, the stefan encounters what you know the, the maybe the one of the most dramatic things he did and this would have been the, that second meeting sitting outside the i think it was what's that bay street and uh cumberland there's there's a little starbucks there at the corner we were sitting outside one of the little circular tables and he uh he pulled out uh a little art gallery guide, a little booklet, a thick little booklet called Slate. It's like the, the guide to Toronto art galleries. And I don't know, it comes up maybe every two months or twice a year. I, I, and it, it, it's, it's a pretty comprehensive listing of what's going on in, in the upcoming weeks and months. And uh, I, I think it covers quite a swath of southern Ontario. But uh, he, he kind of just chucked it. It felt like this like act of leisure domain, you know, like I, I, I hadn't seen him carrying any. <laughs> Just yeah. like all of a sudden, this it was it was as if I don't think he manifested it out of the air, but it's you know to me it's just as good as it, it it was as if it just kind of appeared in his hand and he chucked it on the table, and he said he said choose five galleries, um, go have a look around, get yourself invited to some parties, meet some people, and then we'll talk. <laughs> so it gave me a little mission, you know, and right. and uh, and. Um, you know, of course, one, especially after a little bit of skeptical training, uh, you know, one always has to wonder how much is selective perception and uh, how much of it is <laughs> numinous weirdness, anomalous reality that, that can't be accommodated by your small philosophy. But, you know, the five galleries, which I chose, I mean, it wasn't completely random. I, I, I kind of browsed listings and just circled stuff which seemed walkable and kind of interesting and maybe maybe party party potential too I don't, you know but um it, it was odd like this a series of five galleries how relevant <laughs> they, they kind of like in sequence told this sort of narrative mm -hmm. climaxing and it was on queen west the um Museum of Contemporary Canadian Art is it called Moke? Uh, the museum, of, yeah, Museum of Contemporary Canadian Art. I think it's still there on Queen West. But they had a they when I went in there, they had a uh, special exhibit on Canadian animators, and there was um, the one I just sat down at. It was the, I think it was the last thing I saw in that sequence of five galleries, and it was sort of the climax. It was it's like I think at that point in my mind, I was like, is this all just me just projecting, or is it really is this all just weirdly relevant to my life right now and to this relationship, um, this teacher-student relationship, and then and then the final thing I sat I sat down on, and watched it was from a um, a BC animator, 
and uh, by by a BC animator, and it was this you know pretty uh, astonishing, uh, kind of frightening uh, piece of animation. And you know the main character, and it was named Paul. And <laughs> there was this te- teach. There was this teaching going on, which seemed to be a little bit, you know, bringing him into the numinous contact with the numinous and uh, um, um, waking him up to this sort of um, learning, learning mission, a learning mission, you know. And uh, I feel like that was a bit of a me not that it was proof that this was all real and not just in my head but it was uncanny and um yes it's one of those things that makes you go hmm oh yeah yeah it uh forces you to consider really radical possibilities for what's going on you know like um possibilities which actually aren't that um disconnected from some really interesting theories like the simulation hypothesis mm. or biocosm theory like we we've got <laughs> at our disposal now the theoretical outlines and not proofs but um you know uh, we can paint plausible pictures of how something like the truman show could be happening <laughs> you know that's not it's now that we're programming virtual worlds we ask are we in a virtual world that's a very reasonable question to mm-hmm. ask and even if you don't accept Bostrom's argument that we're likely in a virtual world, it's that's not just a fanciful life may be a dream, you know, thought. It's like this is a very distinct possibility for what is going on, that we're in a series of nested sort of crafted simulations. And then you have to ask, well, what would we want to simulate or what would a simulator want to simulate? And something like a good story is going to be part of it, probably. I mean, look at what we simulate when we create worlds, um, you know. Well, you think even of just of of alternate history, like there's there's many, many books written on how the Nazis could have won the war, different Mm -hmm. scenarios, things like that. I mean, Philip K. Dick, of course, got famous for writing a novel with just that premise, Mm -hmm. where, of course, the the Axis won the war. Like these are things we've been designing virtual worlds since before there was we had a concept of the virtual. Yeah, it's really uh, uncanny that. You put a kid in a room um, and their default behavior um, is to start creating a world and inhabiting it through play. And, it's interesting you say that. Yeah. I, it recalls an instant. I don't remember this because apparently I was two, two or three, four, something like that. There was some sort of family gathering and the adults are talking about whatever they're talking about. And during a moment of silence, I just looked up at them and said, I had a daughter once. Her name, I think it was Sally. And Grandpa helped me take care of her. And and, and at the time, everyone was just like, oh yeah, whatever, kid. And and then later on, when I heard the story of my aunt and uncle had told me, and they, they seemed to think that this was an indication of something. I don't know if they were thinking virtual worlds or whether it's just a matter of what you're saying. Like children, for whatever reason, that's where they go. They're... Um and they're from that place very recently they they're recent arrivals you know they've they've just come out of the men in black airport and so they have fresh memories of the home planet whatever that is, is. and sometimes they probably speak in a, con- a way which is confusing to us and probably is half confusing them too it's they have um memories of the mother tongue and um 
it is this sort of default behavior, you know? I mean, that's what we do when we do nothing. We fall asleep and we start creating worlds in our, in our head. So it's like, it's, it's, if, 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 uh, uh, you know, man is the analog of world, then um, the world too has this kind of default tendency to um, create a kind of narrative nest within it and to let things run free in it and to give them goals and frustrations. And that's a, that's a story, right? <laughs> you know? Yes. Um, of course. Well, let, let us play Holy Roller now. We've talked so much about it. Let's give the listeners an opportunity to hear it for themselves.
undergone kenosis. And that was Holy Roller off of Dr. P's new album, Alter Egos. Now, there was something you mentioned early on in our discussion of Holy Roller, which I think relates a lot to the next song I want to cover, and that is the idea of the apocalypse. And in free porn, of course, the word apocalypse isn't used, isn't even necessarily hinted at, but or it's said explicitly, but it is, I think, hinted at. Like, you see talking to talk of things like the end of history things like that what what is um i guess your interest in the the apocalyptic the end of history some sort of time where the dust is settled and things are different yeah that's that's it exactly yeah i i think some of it does come from a kind of bleak picture of what's been going on oh what what scale do we want to look at here? I mean, we can talk about oh, get as apocalyptic uh, <laughs> as you like. I don't mind. Yeah, no, I, I was. It's just it's, if if you think of the world as a bleak place, then then you you do start. You know that that's part of the religious yearning is is a yearning for a transfigured environment of some kind, and so some of it is just just that. Um, I guess some of it comes from a, a kind of growing conviction that we are in special times mm. um what gives you that sense that we're in special times well i mean here's just one one indication of it right like a very simple one we we really are among the very first generations who have the literal power to destroy the biosphere <laughs> that was never the case before right in in the history of life on in the four billion history of life on earth there's there's never been a generation of the living who had the capacity to intentionally destroy the biosphere, you know, in a day. <laughs> we could, if we put our minds to it, we could, we, gosh darn it, we sent a man to the moon, we could destroy the biosphere in a day if we wanted to. Well, that's the thing. We don't have to put our minds to it. We just need a few powerful people to press a couple of buttons. Well, that's the thing. It's all set up. Whether through stupidity or, um, uh, uh, you know, technical glitches or malice, I mean, we, so, you know, there's this, sometimes you hear this idea that, well, every generation thinks it's special. Every, you know, every generation mm. thinks the world's going to end. It's not, I don't think it's true. You know, there are these surges of millennialist spirit um, where, where, you know, Christendom is convinced that the world, uh, the end is nigh, but it's not a perpetual feature of, of, um, life i think i think i think a lot of generations on earth have lived with the sense that things were as they always had been pretty much and would always be which doesn't mean idyllic necessarily but you know we do live in special times we have this sense that things are different now and uh, we're living under the chinese curse of living in interesting times you know yes um and um so again, as I said, that's just a very literal, almost mechanical symptom of the fact that we're in a special time, that we, we literally have this capacity. But, um, but it's, you know, apocalypse is also, I mean, I guess it, I think it literally, literally has to do with the shearing of sheep. <laughs> yes. But, uh, you know, going back to the roots of herder cult culture for our, our most exalted theological notions, but um, 
um, I guess it's got this connotation then of clearing, clearing. Right. Well, I mean, and nuclear war is a shearing of a kind. That's right. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and, and that, that mushroom cloud is rather um, fluffy. Yes. But um, um, but it's it's a clear it's a clearing, and of course, there's a paradise on the other side. Of, you know, the smoke clears, and there's there's a paradise or a transfigured world mm-hmm. revealed, a new world. It's the revelation of a new world, and. Is that what we're seeing in free porn? Is is this a vision of this new world? Partly, I mean, it, it is. It is like a, 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 a amusing about the, at, at the end of history. You know, a vision of what things might look like at the end of history. Kind of the sense of um, uh, life itself being retired. You know, individual living beings retire mm-hmm. at some point. But this is, I guess, a vision of life itself in its retirement stage, and um, you know, just like in in retirement, I think a lot of the the joy of retirement is having enough understanding of life from having lived it Mm. that you can now appreciate it as a witness or observer and um there's a there's this great science fiction book uh by greg egan called permutation city and in you know it's it's a it's a vision going into the far future of an you know hyper virtualized um, um world um, and <laughs> there's a capitalistic element where, uh, you know, it, it costs money to inhabit this world, I guess, to rent server time or whatever the equivalent would be. Anyway, there, there are people who are in this potentially, um, immortal digital existence in this digital world who can't afford to uh, be quite robust and active in that world, they can afford just enough to sort of watch the news of the world. Yes. Basically, they get to you know, like angelically hover in this d- digital world into the foreseeable future. And they get like, it's like they just have enough credit, economic credit to get woken up every 10 days, let's say, to read the headlines or something like that. Mm. I remember there was some French intellectual who said, uh, I, I would die, I would, I would, you know, I would open my wrist, but I, I really want to see how French politics turns out. He's just yes. want to read the news every day. So, but, uh, I mean, that's the thing. It is sort of like the ultimate soap opera. You get in the, in, in the news, like we don't see many in newspapers now, people don't serialize short stories anymore. <laughs> Instead, you've got to follow what's actually going on. It's it's pretty compelling. It's almost too compelling, you know. I uh, oh no, I I avoid the news not because because I hate it. It's because it's too compelling. It's just and you just no get so absolutely drawn into it. No, no. Someone I know they were trying to quit cigarettes and they were saying like, oh, "What addictions do you have?" They say to me, and I said honestly, it's the news. Mm-hmm. You get wrapped into one thing and then it leads to another thing and it just keeps going and going and going. You don't even remember the beginning by the time you're few weeks in you don't know exactly what it was that drew you in but here you are you're still going on seems like that's that's what we're all in now like that's a big part of what's going on we just watch what's this information overload too to a certain extent it's information overload but it's got this sort of narrative cunningness to it where it, it it just seems to pull the world in periodically to these stories that have this it's almost like they're 
you know, AI designed, um, just, just, you know, like YouTube's algorithms are getting better and better at recommending just the video you want to see. And, uh, it's almost like at a, at a larger scale, there's something like that occurring with just the the major narratives that the world is getting absorbed in through the news. These are just perfectly designed to, well, not just absorb us, but also to split us and divide us, Mm. I think. Um, Scott Alexander on Slate Star Codex has a wonderful short story about about a, a schism algorithm, which is perfect. It's 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 uh, dreamt up in some California startup, and it's 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 an algorithm which knows how to create perfect schism sta- statements. And they test it out on Reddit subreddits, and they just know, it's just it just knows how to design a perfect title for a new subreddit thread that mm. will immediately generate the. Yeah, you get know the most intense kind of controversy for that sub community, <laughs> and well, divide mean, it, them into two camps. And this well, is an apocalypse engine, of course, right? Yes. Uh, well, there was one engine. story the other day, and I, you, and honestly, it could have come from such an algorithm. Of course, you know, Mister Potato Head. A little bit, yeah. Yes, the the very famous children's toy, of course, is in Toy Story, the animated film, and all that. Well, Mister Potato Head is no more. It's now just Potato Head, a, a gender neutral potato that you can. <laughs> dress up however you like and this is one of those things i mean i look at this i don't give a fig for mr potato head or potato head or whatever he she it is going to be but a lot of people got very angry they're very defensive about mr potato head and then there's another side that's very angry who thinks it should be just a gender neutral potato and they fight back and then there's a uh, a a a mandela effect community who thinks that it has always been potato head that there well, never was a mister <laughs> that's right well that that will be i mean the things like different like these brand things that disappear like aunt jemima is no more oh no oh yeah i i can you know what oh god should i say this but i don't know i don't know much about the aunt jemima um the history of that particular um little uh icon and image but uh um yeah, it's it's. What was I going to say? Well, it's, I mean, it's it's, it's uh, you know what you know what you know what I was going to say. Just like mm. at a purely like um, instinctive, reactive level, like a very politically naive um, absorption of that meme as a child. It felt very benign to me. You know, like like yes. uh, like it just it just probably the uncle like the Uncle Ben you know uh, icon. It just it felt I like think a Uncle benign, Ben is gone too now. Yeah, those they felt like benign presences. I'm not, you know, again, I say, I'm saying that's a politically maybe naive. No, no, I, I think it's a very fair point because I think most people just see Aunt Jemima as the syrup they like. And that's mm-hmm. the end of it. It really is immaterial what it's called. It just happens to be called Aunt Jemima. It's just I raise these things. I don't particularly take a view on what we should be naming syrups or potato dolls or whatever. Just merely like these are things that in a way like they seem so trivial. And yet people are ready to go to war over it. I mean, maybe maybe Aunt Jemima was an actual African household deity being inserted into the modern capitalist economy. You know, like 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 almost uh, had had inserted herself, was incarnating mm. into the American household in the post-war era and and uh, 
and uh, she chose it's like like philip k dick's idea that god is in the trash stratum yes. you know that with that like I, I i that that dickian thesis resonates in my head most days and i see no. uh um not evidence of it but uh, uh definitely um potentials of that that thesis everywhere and and so yeah again again I, i'm not necessarily arguing for the um return of the Aunt Jemima brand I just don't know enough about that whole story but it's just I'm also open to interesting possibilities that are a little bit disruptive of you know I don't want to say standard politics but um you know it's like <laughs> if, if this is just totally speculative but uh, what what if Aunt Jemima was a benign African household deity who was going to transform America if we let her in and she found her way in of course through this trashy uh, through this trash stratum of uh, commerce, but uh, and uh, there's a demonic force that wants her influence removed from the American marketplace, and so it found this politically convenient reason to do it. I mean, you know, yeah. like this, I'm just saying, it's just this is possibly what's going on too. Yes, and I, I, again, it's not at all an argument for <laughs> bringing the Jemima back, but it's just, it's just. Uh, it's just a reminder, maybe not to be too certain about uh, the ends of our actions and the results. No, I mean, it is one of those things like Aunt Jemima. I think Aunt Jemima just passed through pretty uncritically mm -hmm. in the minds of people. Mm -hmm. Like, I think the most criticism would have just been devoted to the flavor. If you like, oh, Aunt Jemima tastes, you buy it. If you don't, you'll go for another company. And that's sort of the end of it. Mm -hmm. But then now, like, it, it is interesting, like, how you take these things that were just there. And as you say, perhaps it's politically naive to say, but they were seemingly benign. They were just a, a matter and they were, they were trash in a sense. And yet here they are now, they're on, I guess what the term people like to use is there, it's a culture war. This is another, this is another front in the culture war, the Aunt Jemima front, you know, where group X has laid siege to, to the brand name. And there's the, and it's, and it just goes on and on. And we're, we talk about it this way and it's, it's, it seems almost sillier if it is just a political dispute, then if it is the the speculation that you have offered us, mm -hmm. yeah, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I like to think on that large canvas and uh, about these these weirder possibilities. Um, um, but, I mean, it seems like not even a matter so much like we talk about thinking on this canvas and so on. It's not even so much just a matter of. I guess, uh, necessarily stumbling upon the truth or what's really going on, but so much is just trying to, it's a matter of training your mind, isn't it? Mm -hmm. To look beyond, in this case, this political cultural dispute and see what, what else is going on. Like that is mm -hmm. part of the, the draw of the news, isn't it? Like what, what brings you in is not just the events themselves or what the, commentators tell you is important but just seeming like how like it's all part of just some wider schism yeah yeah i uh you, you know i mean it was it was a sort of sci-fi story that scott alexander wrote i forget its title but but you know it felt like uh he, he was sort of telling us what's already going on i mean these uh these YouTube video recommendation algorithms, for example, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I, I, I don't know if we're already there yet, but I, I, I guess they're going to get to a point where 
they are recommending videos better than any human curator, group, group of curators could possibly do. Maybe even better than a, a group of your close associates and friends and family could could do, you know, with total access to YouTube's library. Mm-hmm. And um, like that is the, the algorithm will do a better job of sending you the next video, which is, which you're most likely to click on. And, you know, if, if you just give the algorithm that goal to maximize eyeball to screen time, well, quite innocently, the algorithm is probably going to stumble on um, the fact that it's sending videos to a species that has an evolutionary history, uh, which in part has been a 4 billion year, well, let's say 500 million year, to link it with the history of the nervous system, fear training regimen. <laughs> Life has been a fear training regimen through the nervous system. Fear and pain and anger. I mean, well, that's the news, things. isn't it? Fear, pain, anger. Oh, yeah. If you want to maximize eyeball to screen time, you're going to have to um, enliven these sort of primal subsystems of your audience to keep them engaged. Right? We're very. Mm-hmm. If, if we think our life is under threat, we think it is very important we keep our eyes wide open to the information the relevant information so if the if we're getting videos which are telling us this is your if the message of the video stream is essentially your life is at risk and the next video might have information which could save you or you know notify you of, of a relevant threat that's that's one way to maximize eyeball to screen time and i think i think these algorithms are figuring that out without being told necessarily just by mm-hmm. trial and error and learning from success and failure and they're going to get to a point where they're they're beating us and we don't even know how anymore you know it's like with these uh, chess playing um, um programs that we don't we don't even understand why they're making the moves they're making sometimes we can see that they're beating us mm-hmm. but we don't we don't we don't even understand anymore why they're making that particular move maybe even at even after the game is done we don't understand what function that particular move played exactly but it seemed to work and um i you know and, and so i think these these algorithms just thinking of you know article and and video recommendations through social media i think we've got a schism machine already already in action and that's that's explaining a huge percentage of what's going on right now <laughs> just wave after wave of you know controversy which which divides families i mean think of how many families are divided right now not only by physical distancing out of concern for each other, but through the controversy over the um, um, necessity of some of these measures like masking and social distancing, mm-hmm. and families who are quite bitterly divided about these interpretations of what's going on and what's needed. And uh, so these, these, there's this... Well, that's the thing. When you have something that says, and this is a bit of an overused word, but when you have something as disruptive as a pandemic something that is necessarily going to interrupt the regular flow of life when that's gone. And there is just seem to be like this time, like this is something that it's interesting. Like, I, I don't know, you can tell me, but I mean like free porn almost seems like almost like a COVID song of a kind. You have like an emphasis on the weekend, Friday, Sunday, Saturday, like you, you talk about the, the weekend and what's going on in, in a way like, Every day now is the weekend. Yeah, it's, uh, I hadn't quite thought of that, but 
um, like I said, it's, it, I thought of it as a song about life itself being in retirement, mm. but it also does sound like a, a whole civilization now, uh, where every day is like a holiday and, um, yeah, uh, you know, this, these are lyrics I had written quite a while ago. Uh, most of the lyrics for the album came from, you know, pre, pre-written material. A lot of, most of it published already, including this one. I think this one was a sort of a poem which I had tweeted out on my, my old Twitter account back in maybe 2012 or 2013, somewhere around then. But there were there were a few songs on the album. I, I think maybe two or maybe three. I'd have to look at them one by one, which had mostly new lyrics. And one of them, one of them was actually a, explicitly a COVID song, a lockdown song. But uh, it didn't it didn't make the final cut for the album. But it's mm. it's out there on YouTube somewhere. That's a scoring scoring a anti COVID video, but mm. anti lockdown video. But um, um, the. Uh, the kiss uh, is is a song which I de- you know I, I I had lockdown in mind when I was writing those right. lyrics. It was in the early weeks of the lockdown, and um, those very short uh, lyrics were, yeah, were about about what was going on. I think. Right. Well, let me ask you just something about I guess the the, the format of, of free pouring. Because you have it going between what's what's sung and you're joined. Is this is your this is your sister you're singing with, correct? Yeah. Yeah, Kieran. Yeah. So you have you, you and Kieran singing, and then you have the spoken word, and there is like this this Manichaean division really between the tone. As in the song, it seems like everything is floating along, like Sunday shall remain for surfing the Devangelis and cleaning up Stephen stains, and then in comes this voice, and at times can be quite severe. Why aren't you tuning to Ed Sullivan? Yeah, uh, uh, why aren't you tuned? Yeah. Did, did, did this guy come across as severe? I was I was hoping he'd be more at, like at, t- yeah. at times like that. Was, that was interesting. Is it is there? There are many moods in the in the spoken word portion. It gets a little harsh there, but then at the same time, you're it's almost like uh, like I'll, I'll tell you this actually. When I first listened to this song, I was I with the whole album really. I was out for a walk, and when I would hear the spoken word portion of this song or any other song that features such. It almost felt like it was a guide, like someone taking me through time and space, and and just showing me what has happened, perhaps what will happen. Yeah, like almost a, a guide to the apocalypse. Yeah, for sure. Um, a tour guide to the apocalypse, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, this, yeah, this guy is some kind of um, narrator for sure. Maybe a narrator who, if we if we ask like where is he and when is he, he's he's already there, you know. And he's yes, calling us forward, speaking from the end of history. I probably, if I was like when I was doing that voice, I might have been thinking a little bit of the um, narration from Barry Lyndon, the Stanley Kubrick film, um, which has this wonderful, a little bit like the the Hal. 9,000 voice. It's a little bit, not inhuman, but um, outside of time, you know, mm. almost from speaking from the perspective of eternity. Um, definitely, um, you know, we're watching Barry Lyndon's life unfold before our eyes and, you know, we're there with him. But uh, the, the narrator's sort of past, you know, the narrator's speaking from, from the future when Barry's, Barry's already dead. I think, and um, 
with this narrator, I meant him to be a little more like, uh, um, like teasing, like a teasing criticism, like shame, like telling us to wake up because the party's already happening. There's a little, I was trying to give it a little bit of that, <laughs> like, come now, wake up. The party's happening. Don't you know? Why are you wasting your time doing this when that is going on? Kind of thing. But is that, is that what you mean? Like when you say, with every day, those who knew the spoiler grew in number and could not hide their happiness. I was thinking, what is the spoiler? I, I confess, first thing that came to mind was a wrestler called the Spoiler, who is actually <laughs> who is who is actually quite quite popular in your native Toronto. The there's a wrestler named the Spoiler. Right? Yes, well, he. I don't know. I confess, I don't know a great deal about your institution, Ryerson, but I do know that. They they own the Maple Leaf Gardens now, and that used to be a hotbed for for wrestling. And the spoiler was a major yeah. heel, which would mean a, b- a bad guy. And <laughs> yeah. I so that was my first thought, like, oh well, people are, people are happy to know that there's such a such a fine wrestler as the spoiler. But I, I, I sense that that's probably a mistaken interpretation. Oh no, I mean, you know, again, these aren't essays, so. Um... I mean, even essays are open to interpretation, but uh, mm. uh, the, I think part of the point of a poem or a lyric is to uh, um, revel in a certain degree of ambiguity and to actually choose words and phrases that will be perfectly ambiguous in many cases. Um, so, and I mean, um, that is, I think, the the advantage, isn't it? Because say you wrote an essay, one of the lines was, those who knew the spoiler grew in number. And I and I I say to you, oh well, is that, is that the wrestler? Like you probably wouldn't be very happy. You think I wasn't taking you seriously? <laughs> no. I, Whereas I, here I can say, oh, I thought of the wrestler, and we can have a laugh. Well, if if, if he's a heel, you know, he's 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 going to be getting the audience booing at him. And uh, the spoiler I I was probably thinking of was uh, you know like a spoiler in a movie review, mm. which reveals the the plot twist in you know first paragraph of the movie review well that's right the end of history i guess that yeah. that is the plot twist yeah it's a little bit like I, I was thinking of someone who knew that we're it's it's all it's all the truman show man it's all yeah. or it's it's all it's it's but it's some happy version of of all that well see and, and that's the thing and i about the end of history or the apocalypse whatever you want to call it i mean people people i think when they think of the end of history they probably think more of the the fukuyama belief right. like that with the end of the cold war that yeah democracy and capitalism of triumph and that's the end of it but of course we're, we're beyond political economic systems here in in the true like end of history yeah this is the end of uh life as we know it i guess i get I, you know apocalyptic is is just one of those maximum scale terms we have you know for the mm. end of the end of this thing which is so big we can't even name it so it's definitely not just a particular political system or movement uh it's 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 like the end of water if we're a fish but of Mm -hmm. course we don't even know we're in water because it's everything supposedly i'm sure fish know they're in water but or have some anyway i don't i actually don't well they must because i mean they certainly know when they're not (laughs) that's (laughs) well put but maybe that's that's the tragic discovery too late. They realize, yes. oh, I was in water and I, I want to get back to water. Right. But I mean, I even think of like I used to have a fish when I was a child and every now and again you'd have to take take him out of the tank to clean it. And there was one time where I wasn't 
being as I guess meticulous as I should have been, and the fish briefly fell out of his little temporary bucket and got on the counter and is flopping around. Of course, I scramble and stick him back in. Like there, when you have sort of those brushes with the apocalypse, the fish apocalypse in this case, the the world without water. <laughs> And then you return to that water after that moment of absence, that moment of no doubt great terror and horror. And you see what you, you realize now, oh, whatever this is, water, air, whatever, like this is where I am. This is what's around me. And that moment of absence, it's, it's a lesson. Yeah. Um, like that's where the awareness can come from. Like, I, I guess, I guess a question to ask you would be like, if you had a, I don't know how to put this exactly, but a, a personal apocalypse of a kind, like something where you, you've been ripped from the world, however briefly, only to re-enter it again with some sort of new understanding. I think um, I haven't had like dramatic sort of astral <laughs> kinds of uh, transcendence. Um, definitely had shifts in identity i think you know where a certain form or a certain narrative i was operating under comes to an end i mean that's life we all have that right and mm. life is full of these little apocalypses for sure um definitely feel i had like a dramatic shift in my life in my mid-30s maybe and it's almost like uh, you know like an extended adolescence came to an end and actually in some ways entered the world for the first time and um so it wasn't it, it, in a way the opposite of apocalypse i guess it was like waking up to the world <laughs> the reality <laughs> of the world and really understanding uh, there's this thing and it's real and, and you're in it i was maybe a little bit half half in a dream state prior to that i guess but um yeah no i guess an apocalypse is i mean have, uh, really we all have every 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 time we wake up, we have a true apocalypse where um, a world comes to an end, you know, where a dream world is destroyed and we wake up. And the waking up, as you know, Dick says, um, as you say, remembering and waking up are indistinguishable. <laughs> when you wake up, um, you're remembering, oh, I'm actually in my bedroom, you know. And I'm well, another another Paul, Paul Valeria, he had a line in his, his notebooks that always stuck with me where he said that waking up is like you're a diver and you're submerging from the depths of the water and you're back up in the air again. Mm -hmm. And but the thing is, is most people, though, when they wake up, they think of it as just waking up like they may remember like it's just it's just one state to another like sleep is the necessary part of life and we do it and then we wake up and we carry on with our day we may remember our dreams and chuckle and think oh well that was funny or that was weird or that was frightening but that's the end of it like there isn't a lot of analysis these are just the functions of life oh, maybe the apocalypse will be like that too like oh mm -hmm. That was a fun. Oh, no, that's water it. Slide. That wasn't so bad. That was. Uh, that yeah, was all a those water. disaster movies made seem like it'd be fires and tsunamis and tornadoes, yeah. the yeah. the size of Mars or whatever. And now, and it was, and but it was just it was it was as cheesy as a disaster movie. Yeah. It in the end, it was just on that scale. It was the world was like a, a Roland Emmerich film at mm. the end, and oh my god, or like a Stephen King novel. It seemed like a lot of his novels ended with things just like kind of burning down. Yeah. He had a hard. He was a little bit graphomaniac, graph, graphomaniacal and, uh, 
um, just just couldn't stop writing, so he just would burn the town down like in needful things. But um, um, yeah, the apocalypse might be funny like that too. We wake up and we're like, oh, that was, oh, it was just that. Okay, and then, <laughs> what's for breakfast? You know, like heaven is just toast. And um, and then it's like, oh, maybe we'll go back down that water slide again. Well, I tell you what, let's get a let's get a preview of the apocalypse right now and listen to free porn off alter egos. Friday is as far as the week can get away with not being a holiday. Sunday shall remain surfing the evangelism, cleaning up semen stains. With every day, those who knew the spoiler grew in number. end of history folks were holding loyal to their troubles and their ignorance if this time it's true that crime rates tank when the Beatles play Ed Sullivan why aren't you tuned to Ed Sullivan if cliche you concede is a system thinking through you why this suspicion that our poetry Oh, let us live in amity, war in Concord, M.A., in mutual America. A shameless gang, we shall be riding free in our Cadillac, top-down, all sugared up. Friday is as far as work can get away with not being a holiday. So that was Free Porn by Dr. P off his new album Alter Egos, available at pbali.bandcamp.com. Now, Dr. P, 
let's stick with the apocalypse, the fire and the brimstone for a second before we move on to to perhaps happier or more heavenly things. And let's let's talk about the song Ravers. This one hits you right away. A hunter cannot run a doe down. Guns have slowed them, made them loud. Things about endless wars. There's a whole sequence talking about decline. Like this, this really, I, I think, is probably the darkest track on the whole album. Yeah, and uh, a lot of that is just, like so many of these songs, it's just, it just um, comes from the world that Jeffrey made. You know, the way, the way we made this album was almost without exception. Jeff put together a kind of basic track in his studio in Montreal and sent it to me. And then I, I tried to insert myself into it and, you know, find words that not only fit rhythmically, but more importantly, find a kind of, you know, subject or attitude that fits the, fits what the song makes you feel. And uh, that, that track that Jeff put together, you know, with that, I called it the uh, Tibetan death horn. <laughs> I think in my early yeah. emails that Jeff has the Tibetan death horn that uh, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's so just like a that, piercing, that piercing synthesizer. Yes. Yeah. It's just, I think it's a twin synthesizer notes just slightly phasing in and out of tune and it's uh i mean we've had complaints that it hurts people's ears and it, it yeah, does i had, you know, I had to like, turn it down a little yeah <laughs> yeah and uh i think i think uh, we're we're okay with that we we knew we weren't making pop music so uh mm. we felt it's okay for music to literally hurt sometimes but um but yeah that 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 felt like a clarion call of the apocalypse or something like just like very clearly setting a kind of apocalyptic tone a call to war or something and so yeah i found i found some words which seem to fit that spirit um yeah yeah but i mean like you, there's this whole sequence here i mean i won't read the whole thing where you repeat over again even in decline i mean that's the i mean this is the sense i mean are we in i guess do you regard us to be in a period of decline and if so like what in what sense find myself uh repeating like a mantra the opening of the dickens novel more and more best of times and worst of times <laughs> yeah it's uh, i just i just and and that's you know that's apocalyptic thinking i guess i mean the apocalypse is the best and the worst thing that ever happens to history it's the end of the world but it's also the beginning of paradise and and it's not just incidental that the one follows the other they're intrinsically linked probably in ways we we can barely understand from here um but it's the way i it's, it's like as i mean i can get into a pretty dark place where I, I think of the ways in which we've we are um in decline and there's an illusion Ooh. can you give us like a top and, three <laughs> you know it's 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 but it's always this contradiction where where you could it's it's like the old the old jane uh principle that whatever is asserted the the logical opposite of it can be asserted and defended with equal justification mm. and uh i mean i mean part of part of the theme of this song is what we do to what we do to animals and mm. um you know um on the one hand we're doing things to animals that a sadist of the 1400s could not have even dreamt I mean, in, in our laboratories, we're, we've invented new ways of harming animals. We've 
genetically modified animals to be more susceptible to pain, right? I mean, there's there's only so much you can torture an animal with the, um, you know, with, with nervous system 1.0, but we've upgraded it to make it more susceptible to pain, like in pain research. So mm. it's, it's like on the one hand, and then, you know, you look at factory farming. I mean, farming has never been, uh, for the most part, a happy thing for animals, but... The horrors of factory farming are they are pretty special you know like baby chicks going into masticators hundreds of millions a year just being ground up alive and it's just it's just these are these are it's it's like a, a new order like a scale and intensity of these horrors on the other hand it's like the flip of that is i do think there's a kind of consciousness about the animal question and about a relation to animals which I don't find, you know, I'm no master of history, but I don't find great evidence of anything quite like this in the history of civilization, like city-based living. I mean, I, first the first objector in my mind puts puts his hand up and says, well, what about, uh, you know, Indian civilization and uh, Buddhism and ahimsa, non-harmfulness? And yeah, there is that, there is that tradition in Indian civilization, but I don't know. A lot of a lot of it, in my like glancing appreciation of it, has has been um, partly out of concerns for purity, maintenance, like a sort of Brahmanic concern for maintaining karmic mm -hmm. and ritualistic purity. Not that there was no compassion for animal suffering, but it's 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 like when we when we think of Indian civilization classically being this sort of animal utopia or something, it's just it's, it has it's not. This was one of the great herding civilizations, which used animals in war and and uh you know commerce and agriculture like any other civilization it had this special place set aside for certain kinds of <laughs> um quadrupeds and uh, but you know there was this amazing thing that happened in the religion where you know uh there was this explicit concern um marked for for animals and you know maybe taken to its most dramatic endpoint with the jains but but I don't know. Like it's, I, I still, I still think there's something new happening now in our relationship with the biosphere, um, a real ecological consciousness, which you know is growing. I don't know if it's going to grow fast enough and in time to save things. But well, so it's we, like you know, best and we, worst. It's just, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, as we've been talking earlier, like the the idea that we now have the power to destroy the biosphere, the flick of the switch. Mm -hmm. I mean, even leaving leaving a nuclear weapons aside or any other form of apocalyptic weaponry even just industrialization that brings with it a whole host of questions regarding man's relation to the environment and animals yeah. and all the rest of it like that that seems yeah. to be like the reaction to industrial technological society there is going to be that other side i guess what we would broadly refer to is the animal rights movement yeah, it's uh, yeah. You could see this eco animal movement as a counter movement within industrialization or a corrective to it, um, and it might be one of those classic cases where we we don't come to an idea until we're faced with extreme peril. It's like it, it's an idea we need to adopt and absorb and um, act on to save, if only to save ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, uh, but uh, yeah. Um, uh, we have this capacity to destroy the world now, and interestingly, we also have the capacity to 
engineer on a planetary scale now and to create virtual universes. So it's, it's at the very same time we've developed the capacity to destroy our base world, we've developed the capacity to create a new inhabitable world. You know, I don't think we're at the point yet of uploading minds to hard drives, but, uh, you know, uh, you can see the outlines of that. Well, with, I mean, and with, I, I, you know, I'm just spitballing here, but that's, it's very interesting. Like, as you say, like, really, what we have now, if we sort of take things and if we sort of pull out as far as we can, like what we have now is really an era of possibilities, mm -hmm. of more possibilities than ever before, ranging from an apocalypse, end times, nuclear war, what have you, all the way down to, as you say, taking the same technology that we can make bombs with to engineering our way out of the problems we've got ourselves in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, stories. What's going on? A really great story. And uh, if you were back up, you know, in, in, uh, in paradise or the, the uh, loading program or the ante room of, of the cosmos and you were, you were ready to go back down for another, for another slide. Well, yeah, we're, we're really to, like we're in like the ultimate choose your own adventure novel. Yeah, I mean, uh, you, come on. It's, we're, we're in a pretty interesting time. Yeah, oh. This would be a very popular, uh, you know, game. This, you know, this historical reenactment. This, yes. this one, this, this, this. Modernity, uh, the video game or something. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. An apocalypse sim. Grand Theft that. Modernity. That's yeah. It could be this open sandbox <laughs> world right. where you can yeah. rove around anything as possible. It's like this this world is a men in black airport uh, yeah. out, outgoing where you could, all these possibilities have opened up from here you can open up into many many different worlds i think we were we were a little more locked in maybe um prior um i mean well certainly i mean you look at science like when it really started to butt up against religion a lot like in the in the 19th century when people would formerly believed the two were compatible somehow suddenly you had people saying no no like science and religion they have to be kept far apart they have nothing to say to each other and of course religion i mean i take that in sort of a broad very broad sense encompasses the conventional things we think of like the great religions of the world christianity judaism islam buddhism hinduism what have you take your pick uh, but also just sort of i guess what we would refer to as anomalous the anomalous mm -hmm. probably be, or the paranormal even mm -hmm. like things like ufos that seemingly had their moment in the 50s and the 60s of this early post early cold war craze in the post-world war ii era like now suddenly they're coming back again the UFOs like they never back. really left of course if we're talking of the phenomenon itself but interest mm -hmm. like it, it reappears now all of a sudden yeah uh, like you mean the uh, I, I remember reading recently about the the U.S. Air Force. Yes. Well, yeah. There's the very famous with, yeah. the tick. Was it the Tic Tac or whatever it is? Because the the the, right. the craft looks like a a Tic Tac <laughs> candy, and uh -huh. it's seen flying. Or of course, there was also a Muamua. A very Muamua, yeah. Strange, yeah. Strange Obvious. thing. I I recently read the the book. By Avi Loeb, extraterrestrial. He's the head of the, at least for now. I haven't kicked many, him out yet, but he's the head many, of the, the astronomy department at Harvard. Yeah, how many? And, how, just how many books per week do you read? And these are like, uh, <laughs> these are, you know, how, how, you, you, you're, 
Well, I, I don't. It's protocol. actually interesting. Someone actually had asked me the same question the other day, and I, I, I crunched the numbers and oh, I, I wish I could remember what it was, but it, it was something like last 3. year, 6. like based off of last year's numbers, it was like, it was something like, like four point three books a week, something like that. I was close. I guess three point six. If you round it, up to the nearest four point two. Yeah, I mean, I may be misremembering. You may be spot on, but, um. But no, I do. I do read an awful lot. But in in that book, like he he very much stresses the idea that whatever this is exactly, it is of some some extraterrestrial origin. It may have just been space junk that, over time, had just sort of floated off into the the nether regions of space, much as our space probes have, and that now it's yeah. it's come into our orbit, or at least did for a time. And and I bring up like the the UFO thing because I think it is is one of those things where it it just shows like people are interested in what lies beyond, and we're constantly battered with the anomalous. We just have to look, and yeah. whether this this I don't know what you want to call it this this general interest this folk interest whatever in the in the anomalous whether that is. Is in of itself is another side of modernity. Like we now have, we can take like these technologies, the the mass production of books, the freight logistics that get it to us like three minutes after we've ordered it, or 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 even just the internet for just doing your very basic research or communicating with others. Like these, these are the reactions I think that if if there is any sort of hope for. For, for man as it were it, it it lies in these sort of explorations not because the answer necessarily lies in the ufo I mean, it could who's to say but by orienting yourself in this direction it's like if you only looked at half the sky mm-hmm. and now you've decided to crane your head to the to the left and see the other half that you never saw before it does uh it does seem like the anomalous has some kind of uh power it's almost like if it you know any any mythology will have to have a one of its primeval characters as the embodiment of the anomalous or not necessarily chaos but the the thing that just enters the scene hi remember me forgot about me it's uh uh we call her ula sometimes and she, sw- she just swings through in a vine if you look up in the sky sometimes she's swinging by and laughing she's the anomaly ula ula double o l a hmm. and uh and yeah, I think of ayahuasca that way. Speaking of vines, anomalous vines, it's just no. it's, it's it's like if as much as it, if you tra- it's it's like <laughs> think of ayahuasca this way. Like if you tr- if a civilization tries to, a global civilization tries to suppress the anomalous, ayahuasca will happen. It will just the veins of the civilization will be opened and ayahuasca will enter it. You know, within a generation, it's just it's like you cannot suppress the anomalous. The weirdest thing will be injectable or drinkable um very quickly if you try to suppress it it's just uh uh maybe that's good maybe that maybe we have been at some scale consciously not suppressing the anomalous but saving up for ayahuasca Hmm. just i think of the space program that way a little bit too it's like we really wanted to meet the gods of the ancient pantheons like mars and venus um but we realized to actually get there, we'd have to embrace scientific atheism to get serious about our rocket engineering. And so we did that for a few generations. 
Um, we suppressed our religiosity so that we could objectively think about our cosmos and actually get the rocket onto, onto, onto Mars and um, say hi to the god. Well, on that note, why don't we listen to Ravers and then we shall carry on our celestial journey. <laughs> a hunter cannot run a doe down. Guns have slowed them, made them loud. Stay alive, we compromise. For comfort, give up what? What selections have you survived? Death took the brave, death took the sensitive suicide.
was Ravers off Dr. P's new album, Alter Egos. Now, I did promise, of course, before we played Ravers that we would move on to heaven, and I wasn't lying, that wasn't just a cheap tease. There are no cheap teases here on the Goethe Report, Dr. P, I assure you. <laughs> because in this, this song uh-huh. here, I, I would like to... Can we have two or three cheap teases, please? Well, well, if, if, you, if you can come up with a few cheap teases, perhaps we can incorporate hmm. them somewhere. That's a great name. It's like a cheap teases. Uh, good name for a wrestler, maybe cheap tease. Yeah, <laughs> well, honestly, a lot of wrestling, modern wrestling, is a cheap tease. <laughs> so you could have like some meta wrestler who's just so awful at everything, and it and it calls attention that yes, this wrestler is awful, but he or she is only reflecting the wider industry. But. Uh, in terms of heaven, though, which you certainly are not going to find in a modern wrestling ring, you will, however, find it in Chapel Song. <laughs> this this was really a, this was really a fascinating song to me because I, I remember listening to it the first time and thinking, oh yeah, this this is good, but not it didn't really register. And then I listened to the album again and it started to hit me like it's it almost to me. And this may, may seem a, a bit didn't sing but it did almost sound to me like if, if the beatles were alive and like still recording today this is what they would be making it is this very there is this very sort of mid midish late beatles vibe to it um and it's got some do 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 yes and the do do do's yeah so yes yeah, I, I, there was a lot of stretching. I mean, just singing for me is a stretch. So, but the, uh, um, some of these songs, it was interesting with with me and Jeff. He for, for for me, it was partly like a guru disciple relationship because he I think of him as a, like a kind of musical guru. He just has a lot of knowledge and depth. It's like a very old soul musically, and I felt like part of what was going on in the making of this album was. He was throwing me these pitches, like each each track he threw me was like a little challenge or a test or a tease. It's like, okay, let's see, let's see if you can figure this one out, solve it. Not that there's a single solution to any of these tracks he sent, but um, and this one I remember was uh, was was a real challenge and involved a lot of stretching and. It, it took practice, you know. It was it was uh, like so many things. Uh, they begin easy and they, they end hard. The very first track we made uh, was uh, High Again. Mm. And that one happened so fast. You know, he sent me, he had heard a little spoken word piece I'd done and he, he, he contacted me and said he really dug it. And he 
he promised, he said, I'm going to send you a beat. And he eventually did. And I got it and I played it and I, I had an idea for some lyrics. And I think in one evening, I just sat down at my DAW with a mic and spun out high again and sent it to him and he loved it. And he said, are we, are we making an album? And <laughs> I said, yeah, it was really exciting. And, 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 and I probably had this naive view that it was going to be like that. Just, you know, he sends me a song and then I spent an evening and add some words and we got, you know, do that 10 times and you got an album and it, I wouldn't say it got harder with each song, but the, you know, it was like you were leveling up and then the challenges got greater and greater. And Chapel Song was one of the very last ones we did. And mm -hmm. it took, um, I mean, there was an earlier version of it that I was really happy with and I sent it off to him and he, he would see, yeah, you know, like the Kung Fu master, he kind of, he cut me down. Mm -hmm. And um, I was I was angry at first. I thought he was so wrong. I thought it was great. And then I, I usually, I, I, you know, without fail, I realized he was right that, uh, it needed a lot more work. Anyway, this the chapel song took a lot of work, and uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm so pleased you uh, mm -hmm. would even would even mention it in the same sentence as the Beatles. I, you know, I mean, I. No, it's just uh, it's interesting because there is that that poppy feel to a degree yeah. that you would oh, get, like with right. some of those classic Beatles songs, yeah. and and the melodies, the way you sing, like it just there was something that was Beatlesque about it to me. Might be a little bit. Um, I'm just thinking. Not, not, not that I'd compare it to Hey Jude, but it begins with a piano and a voice, and then it ends with like an epic, um, like mantra, like um, like chorale, you know. So it's got a, yeah. For me, it remind it's a little bit reminiscent of of mm -hmm. Hey Jude structurally. It's got that kind of epic feel, but begins with a man at a piano. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, that's the thing is like you talk about. I mean, just moving on to the, I guess, the lyrical content of it. I mean, this is talk about this this church it's not your typical church has no staff it's not overseen it's one that comes alive when you enter it when you drop in because we have as you say everyone has a song yeah yeah and this it, is yeah I, I guess this this is a song about the album making process in part mm -hmm. yeah um uh it was partly a celebration maybe uh, me, me realizing that I had, I had a song in me too, and the realize, you know, the, the, the sense. That, well, if I got, if I got songs in me, then everyone must, because I never thought of myself as a singer. I right. thought of myself as a writer, but to realize uh, that I could, I could make songs with the right guidance, you know, that's. Um, you start to think, well, maybe, maybe that's one version of heaven, where you, you get, you, 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 and you, you go through the exit door of life, and then you find you're on a stage, and you don't have stage fright. You're not. You, it's not like a nightmare where you're naked and on stage. <laughs> it's, it's the opposite of that. It's heaven. You realize you have a song in you already. That's what life was. Life was just you uh, preparing your deep song and you know it <laughs> as well, you know, better than anything. And heaven is just you waking up to that fact. And heaven is just a little chapel where there's a lot of music and mm -hmm. where everyone is gets their time on stage that's well, this like, was a song that uh, yeah no i was gonna say like it seems like this church like it's it's the place where you you reach some sort of se form of self-actualization if i can mm -hmm. say it like yeah your your song you're you're unleashing really what has been inside you you're, you're you've coaxed it out all this time and like now this is it it's showtime 
Yeah, I, I you know I, I mentioned that dream I, I had in the New York hotel room, and this this song came from a, a dream too many years ago, where uh, instead of a piece of writing, I was on stage and uh, with a little trio with a couple of high school friends, and we were we were uh, playing really great rock and roll. You know, it was just like a little trio, and um, and I think even in the dream I was in a kind of state of amazement that, oh, I can play, I can sing. This is great. This is like yeah. this. And and then I woke up and uh, I wrote it out. It was one of the few things uh, in life that I wrote without much struggle. just kind of wrote it out, almost just describing the dream and it felt pretty complete when it mm. came out. And and uh, it was around that time I'd been reading about Kadmon. I think he was like the, the considered the first English writer or poet. And he had a similar experience where he, he was like a illiterate shepherd or, or something to that effect. And um, he was the one who would always shy away from from the harp that was being passed around in the singing hall. And uh, um, when it was his turn, he would always just creep away. And I think one, one day he crept away and left the hall and went out to the fields. And I guess he was visited by an angel or a muse. In Hesiod's day, it would have been a muse. And he was commanded to go and speak or to sing. And I think, you know, his query was, well, what, what will I sing? I don't have anything to say. And she said, just go and the words will come to you. And he spoke forth in verse, you know, the first, the first English poems that we have recorded, I think. I, I'm not sure how much of that is legend and how much is fact, but... It was. I think. I think maybe the dream I had was partly inspired by reading about Kadmon. It's like I had like a Kadmon experience in that dream, mm. <laughs> where I I I I I got a song, you know, and then, um, and it felt like heaven. It felt like a little a little heaven, you know, like a small scale, boutique scale heaven. And um, um, when when we were making this album, it wasn't quite a trio, but it was me and Jeff, and then there, there was often a third person involved. Like my sister was involved, um, and then um, you know Julian at the end was was very much involved, so that he ended up on five of the tracks. I mean half the album, and uh, you know the song is about a trio, you know a trio. So it was, it was it's just that dream, that dream about a trio. It felt for me in making this album, oh this dream is kind of coming true, um, mm. and um, so it. For me, even though I don't, I don't think in sequence it's the last song on the album, if I remember. I don't think it is. But it, in some ways it felt like sort of a, a, a last song on the album. And, uh, or at least a happy note, <laughs> you know, to end yes. it on. Uh, um, with, there is some darkness. As you say, there's, there's a lot of a, kind of apocalypse and uh, maybe prophetic chastising going on in the album. And uh, that's just kind of obnoxious. Like who wants to be, who wants to be Jeremiah? yelling at people um it's much much nicer to show people a vision of something happier that they can move to um so well this is almost in a way like a like a charcuterie board of the apocalypse this album <laughs> like you have all the different notes that you hit like you have chapel song which is and to an extent as well free porn which hinted some sort of happy days ahead of some kind in heaven or in some some realm after the the end of history after the apocalypse and then you have as we saw in ravers this very dark fire the brimstone yeah. just dreariness and sadness throughout and and in holy roller there's 
there's if 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 you want to say there's a message there, I mean perhaps it's it's to listen, to pay attention, mm-hmm. to keep an eye out for the the people like the the gentleman that you encountered in the in the Starbucks. Mm-hmm. Which is probably no longer well that one is definitely no longer there. The first mm-hmm. one we met in is no longer there. Um, I'm not sure about the one at Bain Cumberland, the second one we met in. But every time I go out now, it's like Starbucks are closing down too. It's uh, it's an equal opportunity slayer of businesses, I guess. Yes. Or maybe the Starbucks is just um, uh, gathering its power into the three rings of power and leaving the other six behind. But I noticed that Bloor and Bathurst last time I was out, there used to be three big cafes right around there. One of them very local, the Green Beanery, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. was called the other one was this sort of franchise i think an israel-based franchise called aroma and then across from aroma there was a starbucks and all three are closed now uh, um you know the local the slightly less than local and then the mega globo international corporation <laughs> uh, uh, though uh you know i'm sh- I, I don't know corporately starbucks might still be doing okay um Anyway, we don't need to talk about COVID. No, no. But I don't need to go on a COVID rant, but uh, yes. we, were ending, we were ending on a happy note on yes, Chapel exactly, Song. Yes, exactly. On stage exactly, and people Exactly, we don't need to hear roll. about pestilence. <laughs> yeah, but, but, I, but I mean, that's the thing is, I'm thinking, it is though quite fitting, isn't it, that one or both of these Starbucks are no longer around. Like they're yeah. now whatever they are. Maybe the building was even torn down, who knows, yeah, that you have this, that, that this yeah. site no longer exists. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is nice. It's nice to see things slide into legend a little bit, you know. Um, um, and uh, this this guy did seem unstuck in time a little bit. We, he was very self aware of that too. And well, and, I would say so to you. you know, I would say that's a quality that you have. Oh, and like, and you too, sir. Oh well, too, thank sir. you. And I think like I I would know. say like if somebody said describe Doctor P in a sentence, I would say unstuck from time. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I and I mean people I'm sure say similar things like you over people say, Oh, you're stuck in the past or oh you're just dwelling on future possibilities or whatever. But truly, like I when I think of you, I don't think of past, present, future. You're just you're just here. You just I exist think, and you exist where you exist. I sometimes uh think of you as being from the Borges library, meaning some space outside of time um where all the books exist i guess you know the things that are already written that's <laughs> well i'm certainly out of the library or otherwise they wouldn't they wouldn't let me record a podcast and there i'd be too loud that's that's true yeah yeah though you can get you can get good um sound uh soundproofing these days for your little carol for your mm. study carol Yes, well, there, there, there's not much room left in the Library of Babel to be putting in a studio, unfortunately. Oh, isn't isn't it infinite? I, well, I, I thought it was it, infinite for the books. I right, it's infinite. I didn't and think like then you just could enough throw, space for all all the books. I guess. Well, that's, yeah, that's what that's I figured. Right, yeah. Like, I didn't <laughs> think you could throw in a bowling alley or in a cafeteria. <laughs> that's right. No, it's a recording studio, whatever else. They have just enough room for. It's infinite for books, but for books, and yeah. it's infinite for books, and there's enough room for you to crawl around, and that's about it. Is there no. room to open a book? That would be like the Twilight Zone episode where, um, where uh, <clears throat> the, the bookworm is finally, after the bomb goes off, alone with his books. That's all he ever wanted with, 
uh, from life. But then he steps on his glasses and can't read. He's surrounded by books. Water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. Um, uh, but I wonder if in the, in the Borjas library... It's like the urban legend of the university library whose architect forgot to account for the weight of the books they would put in it after the building was built. And uh, <laughs> it's sinking three inches. I believe that about McLaughlin Library at uh, McLaughlin Library at U of G when I was there. That was uh, spoken of that building, of that 60s brutalist building. And then I learned that it was spoken of at every uh, university library pretty much. Um, well, that's but, the thing. You hear accounts every now and again of, of the great bibliomaniacs of history, these mostly men, but sometimes women as well, who are otherwise led obscure lives, but piled on books, books like if they were around today, we call them hoarders. Mm -hmm. And so many of their troubles came from the fact that their houses would not just sink an inch or two in a year, but just the, the whole structural integrity of the building would fail. And books would come crashing through the ceiling and this is a thing oh yeah oh yeah and then people heartbroken because the town or whatever comes along and says well that there's too much in this house this <laughs> is a, it's a fire hazard it violates this bit of the municipal code and so on and so forth and they they're forced either to leave or they're forced to shed some books and it and it becomes it becomes like for them it's an apocalypse i i would think like it's a, it's a hyper localized one but an apocalypse nevertheless absolutely like if somebody See, said to me like like how do you envision the apocalypse like yes i have like the the hollywood apocalypse in my head of the great tsunami or something just going across the earth or the giant meteorite or the nuclear war but the the personal one for me would be if i woke up one morning and my shelves were bare that's the apocalypse that's you, the end that's the end of history you're a, you're you're a, you are jewish because you're you're a person of the book you're a person of the book so you're you're a deep jew like J jewish in the deepest sense i know i know you're not i don't think you're ethnically or religiously um jewish but but if they are the people of the book um then and that's that's the definition then you are you are you are a jew my friend but um um i was gonna say you know my my visual memes of hoarders i think are very uh lower level like you you've spent more time with your nose in books and i've i probably watched relatively more trashy tv and so my images of hoarders always seem to have a lot of like terrible newspapers like piles of awful yellowing moldy newspapers and probably every issue of people magazine and Re <laughs> readers digest and tv guide your your hoarders sounds like they had like a lot of books like oh well, yeah they pretty uh, much just had room for a bed maybe a, a small bureau or something to keep some clothes in and really every the rest of the space just about is books 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 it's really exalted hoarders yeah see if you if you live in books you just it's it's a higher quality of life you just have better memes in your head, better images, mm. um, better stock characters, probably. The book is usually better than the movie, almost always, almost always. Generally speaking, yeah. Yeah, even Kubrick. I, I like Kubrick, but I think uh, Clockwork Orange, the novel, is better than the movie. Mm -hmm. um, I think most of what's good about The Shining is there in The King's Story. Um, I mean, I love the movie too, but I love Kubrick. I'm saying even Kubrick, right. I yeah. think of, and he chose good books and he made brilliant films, but uh, I don't know, um, I like books. No, and I mean, 
when it comes to to books like i i always i think about this every now and again in part just because i find myself reading so many and i always try to figure out like what is the appeal here exactly like yes reading is a very useful thing and you can learn things and all that but it's not just a, a utilitarian function of advancing myself in the world right like there is something deeper going on there and i i don't think i can even answer the question of why exactly it is i like to read i just do well i i think uh you know i've i think i've told you before i think you have a a, a book gestating in you and um you know most books are made by first ingesting books selecting from the borges library ingesting recombining and then uh filtering through your own you know embodied subjectivity and so there's a book there's a book building in you that's going to come out and 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 uh like the ark being rolled down the aisle of the great uh the great federal warehouse at the end of raiders your your book will enter the annals too uh i don't mean to say it will be lost to history but yeah i think i think one reason you're reading is because you're getting ready to write and you are writing but uh it's it's a long research project your life well you know like it, it, in a way like this ties into chapel song like perhaps we shouldn't take like the idea of like you have a song inside you too literally in the sense that it literally is a song that you will right. sing right you know one song could be a book could be a exactly. painting exactly yeah. movie what have you yeah. i mean i'm always haunted by his quote from christopher hitchens where he says everybody has a book inside them but in most cases that's where it should stay <laughs> and so you i think okay yeah. well that yeah. i think that's great i got a book inside but then i worry like well maybe that's where it belongs <laughs> this isn't something that it should to, see see the yeah. light. Hitchens or, is a, a good example of a thought that was tickling in my mind as you were speaking just now, which is, mm-hmm. I mean, absolutely right. Song song is partly literal and, of course, also a metaphor for any kind of creative production. Um, um, Hitchens, you know, he's. Uh, I was very struck by the musicality of his writing um, um, when I was reading, what I think one of the popular collections of his essays. Um, just like clearly he was choosing words from his very wide vocabulary for the way they roll on the tongue. And there's just, there's a real musicality to his, his writing. You know, he's, he's a, he's a fine essayist and a fine essayist is usually someone who has more than just good ideas. They also, there's some music that comes through the words, you know, there's musical logic guiding the word choices and um you know thesis construction mm-hmm. well the thing is, is i think when, when people think of christopher hitchens they probably don't necessarily think of poetry but that was one of the first things that he as a as a schoolboy was immersed with was having to memorize these like the great poems of the english language right and well, it worked it worked and and, and and that's the thing is of course you can charm an audience by by reading from this poem or that, but the, the the real value of it comes in his writing. Like that that I think just I'm just thinking of this now. Like as you mentioned this, that but I think that that's perhaps where the poetic quality comes from. Is he was just so steeped in it in his education and clearly maintained that reverence for poetry. Yeah, for, the, you know the great poets of the language have just been putting phonemes together in a very pleasing way. They just like they. The great, the great 
poetic canon of a language is, is just like the great discoveries of phoneme combination, among other things, right? It's like, it's, it's the logic, the deep logic of the language is music. And yeah, when you get, get school kids to memorize those sequences of syllables, um, they seep into the blood and the veins and the nervous system and they come out when you speak and, and you write. I mean, not that I'm calling for a return to purely mnemonic <laughs> rote education, but uh, I sometimes wish I actually had a bit more of a dose of that in my 70s experimental public school education. Oh, well, that's the thing. I, when I, like, we, we never learned much in the way of poetry in school. It came up a little bit as you went on. It's just sort of like, oh, this is a thing that people do. They write poems. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. And that was the other. There's no memorization, no real in-depth look at any poets or movements or a particular languages canon. It was just glossed over. And I think that's unfortunate that we don't have that anymore. Because it seems like something that like we're essentially raising people without the poetic in their life. Yeah, I, uh, I, um, uh, you know, you see kids with headphones on, mouthing, uh, mouthing rap lyrics on the TTC all the time. I, well, used to, um, and uh, you know, there's it, it continues. I think it's 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 still it's still happening. It just it's not in the same form that you know that it was um but uh there will always be i hope always be um architects of the phonemes you know uh wizards of the phonemes and there will be the acolytes um pupils absorbing them reverently and then outputting outputting in novel combinations um, well i mean it may be poetry we're kind of yeah. swimming in it now you know like twitter yeah. It really lends itself to very epigrammatic expression, mm-hmm. and so we're and and texting at its best, you know, is forced into the poetic and forced into creative spelling, which is great, you know. Um, so but the question is, I guess, is how many people realize that, like, when you're trying to craft a tweet, say that that falls within the character limit, like, how many people are thinking poetically? And not just like, okay, I need to cut this down or I can't send this tweet. Or, well, I need to shorten these words in this text to to dash it off quickly because I don't have that much time. Like, you see what I mean? Like, how how does, I guess, sort of this these, these utilitarian actions, I guess, translate into the poetic? Like, it seems like that's something that you have to, you have to step back, I guess, from these mediums and, and reflect to realize that. Uh but also there's just uh, cultural selection that will happen, right? Like the, the, the millions of tweets outgoing every day. I assume it's on the order of millions. Uh, there's just there's going to be a s- various selective filters operating, which determine what gets retweeted uh, a lot. And some of those filters will be poetic, meaning people are more likely to retweet or like or heart or whatever um something that has the ring of poetry or music to it or Mm. the logic of the joke to it you know wit wit and brevity (laughs) and music and so whatever you know uh whether people are consciously aiming for that or whether people are just 
consciously aiming to replicate their their virtual self through the Twitter sphere. You know, the poets will not rule, but but there were yeah. I think that's what's been going on all along. Just um, it's partly. I think the la- the language itself is poetry. That is that is um, poetic considerations that have been shaping word choice and word formation all along. So that a com- not a completed language, but a you know a long lived natural language has a natural poetry to it, like a like a a, a river that's kind of um, found its channel and its flow. Let's take a listen now to Chapel Song by Doctor P here on the Goethe Report. Parents of the beach, you will find us. The church is here for just your kind. Parents of them all, rejoice with us. A hall awaits you all mic'd up for every voice. Inside all here stumble on You too have a song And all will sing along Our trio filled the hall We had our time on stage All were made anew again
Welcome back to the Goethe Report. That was Chapel Song of Dr. P's new album, Alter Egos. Dr. P, you mentioned earlier that you're working on a new project. What is that? What are you up to? Yeah, uh, mu- musically? Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess um, lately, I thought I was kind of done with music. I was thinking of it as like a year of music. Mm-hmm. Oh, there was my year of music. That was great. That was wonderful. I, I needed that, you know, bucket list check. And uh, But uh, partly there were some, some commitments from that year that are extending over into the new year and then coming alive in new ways. And I find myself moving more into the role of a producer or co-producer. Um, uh, Kieran, who, who sang on uh, Alter Egos, uh, is, is working on a lot of songs, and uh, I'm, I'm helping out with those. Mostly, I don't even want to say production. She's putting out pretty well-crafted songs. It's like her at her synthesizer, and I'm doing almost like mastering duties, just, you know, fine-tuning the production before it goes out into onto SoundCloud or, um, or uh, uh, you know, Bandcamp. Uh, and then my cousin uh, Jagdeep, who's a very accomplished visual artist and has been writing some poetry. Also, we we started putting some of his poems to to music, kind of passing along almost the spirit of Jeff, <laughs> getting me to uh, commit my uh, written word to to song. Um, we've been getting Jagdeep to put his words to song, and uh, he's a fantastic talent i kind of feel like it's uh like again i had my year of singing singing's a stretch for me but kieran and Chugdeep, these are really naturally expressive soulful um, singers who belong in front of a mic you know and can really convey a whole world to their mm-hmm. listener through their voice and they're they're just uh, making amazing songs so it's really uh, really nice to be helping craft some of those i guess they're they're turning to albums in terms of just, you know, we've got a collection of songs we made over the last year, eight or nine, and they kind of have a similar feel, similar kind of production stamp, so call it an album. Um, yeah. I mean, that thing you mentioned, you see, you do seem to be quite skeptical of your singing voice. Like, Was that something that you expected to do as much as you did on this album? Like um, to sing? No. Or did you think it would be more on the spoken word side? Yeah, I think it was originally going to be a spoken word thing, you know, like it all began when Jeff heard uh, through through Julian, I believe it was a spoken word piece I had recorded and I had added a little beat to it and Jeff heard it and liked it. And when he said, uh, you know, I'm going to send you a beat, I, I assumed we were going to do some more spoken word stuff like, you know, um, put some, put some, put some verse to some beats not quite call it rap but you know like a scholar's rap or something <laughs> and uh when when jeff sent me that just that first that first beat which became the track high again uh i was i you know the main consideration was to fit my voice into that track to make it really blend and uh that called really called for singing in the end, not just spoken word. So yeah, it's most, uh, there's a lot of, there's still quite a bit of spoken word on the album, but a lot of singing just because that, that's what you got to do with your voice sometimes to fit, you know, musical composition. 
I tell you what, I'm as they say in football, I'm going to call an audible. Let's talk about High Again, because this this seems to be like the first song. Like this is your creation story almost. Like because it was was this was this the piece, the spoken word piece that Jeff heard initially that that led him to send you this beat? No, like that was uh, High Again. No, the uh, he he initially heard a, a piece which I had done at a poetry open mic, and I had you know recorded it at home. I can't remember if I recorded it at home. Well, I was getting it ready for the open mic or afterwards, just kind of committed it to to an MP3. But um, no, that was a piece called uh, "Me Too." <laughs> with with or without a hashtag but uh, it was it was a song about like social media narcissism mm. the, uh, spoken word piece and um he heard that and like that hi again um i just kind of found those lyrics from my from my book of years you know and um fit them into the beat that he sent um but that was that was definitely the first track and and when when i made it we weren't thinking I wasn't thinking album at that point. Just, mm. um, hey, let's let's do this beat some justice and tell a little story. Yeah, that's that's I mean, a song about weed, I guess. Yes, <laughs> it's the no, no, I figured talking about like THC in the air supply and whatnot. <laughs> I got yeah. got the sense, yeah. yeah. But I mean, like, is that? I mean, we talk about high again. Like, what was? I mean, was this just all? Is this just an amalgam of just different bits? Like, is there? Um, or how is again, it? Uh, no, I think, I think, I think I can give you the essay version of high again. I can, I can develop a coherent thesis here. Yes, please do. Yeah. <laughs> high again, uh, is, well, it's partly a narrative about, uh, a particular time in my life, you know, when I was, um, set loose in the city downtown and just like, uh, in a slightly exploratory, semi-hedonistic couple of years, um, after, after the end of my first marriage and, um. Um, so it was, it was partly a song, I mean, on, on, on a literal level, it's about, um, a period in my life when I was smoking a lot of weed and just like exploring <laughs> the city mm. and all of its, some um, treasures. But, uh, I guess, I guess it's, it's about trying to stop also like, <laughs> okay, today, um, I'm going to exercise and uh, have just a clean day and then getting accidentally high. So literally the song's a joke, like the joke is, oh, it's it's like, uh, and then I got high, and then I got high, and then, you know, it's <laughs> like, right. I was going to do this, and then I got high, it's my, it's my version well, of that that's song. The thing. It's, it's like, it sounds like, you know, like Afro Man after he's just totally burnt out. Well, it's, it is that song, but it, the thing is, it literally happened to me. It was yeah. it's, it's a true story, you know, I was in my condo, my waterfront condo uh, that I was renting, um, sort of out of my price range for a couple of years and and uh i i woke up as i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna have a clean day i'm just you know and some there was i we had this like it was a new uh, one of these new fancy stoves the stovetop was just this like seamless ceramic single plate and with with four individual burners on it but i put my kettle i put, got up and put my uh <clears throat> kettle of water on to i was gonna have some chamomile tea and <laughs> There was a chunk of hash on the ceramic hot plate near, you know, adjacent to the kettle. And when I leaned over to pick the kettle, the screaming kettle off the off the stove, 
this this chunk of hash just kind of reached its ignition point and just went, Whoa. and as I was breathing in, I I, I breathed in this, you know, doesn't take so, much. So you actually got high by accident. Yeah, I accidentally yeah. got high. Yeah. And of, of course, then it was like, then I smoked more weed, you know, like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I was in that mode then and that yeah. it was like that day became this like kind of like journey into night, you know, yeah. and, and it was very cognitively exploratory but it was also it was like at the end of that day I, I i met the muse you know in kensington market there was an encounter with the spirit of music in the form of mary margaret o'hara so it was partly also i guess it was a good first song for the album to make too because it's a song about meeting the muse and the muse telling you no you you are a musician in in some sense like you are like uh, i i met mary margaret o'hara in the in the back of the moonbeam cafe and um, she had just played with with Julian actually about a month prior to that. Julian had accompanied her um, at the uh, at the Transact Club in the Annex, and um, I, I recognized her as Mary Margaret O'Hara. You know, she's sort of a figure in the Canadian music scene, and and I I said, oh, you know, uh, my, my friend Julian had had just played with you very recently, and he really you know really regards your work very highly. He said something like that, and. And she said, "Oh, well, are, are you a musician?" And <laughs> I was, I was kind of baked, I guess, still, or like you know, in the in the kind of come down of of the of the the day's great bake, and mm-hmm. it probably took an awkwardly long time to answer her question. I was just kind of sitting there, contemplating over my cup of, I think it was a cup of steaming tea at that point, and I, 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 the thing is, I took her question so seriously when she asked it. I wasn't going to say, oh, no, you know, I just play a little bit of guitar or, uh, no, uh, or, you know, I, I was like, am I a musician? <laughs> and she was sitting there with her with her friend and I was thinking about it. Probably in real time, it was seven seconds, you know, but I felt like I was thinking about it for about four minutes. Hmm. And then I said, I, I actually am, I, I'm happy with the answer I gave, you know, so often in in small talk, we give kind of half true answers or just like flippant answers. And I really took her question seriously and I gave a good answer. I said, most of my friends are musicians, <laughs> which is totally true. Yeah. And doesn't answer the question definitively because maybe one can never answer that question definitively. You know, even if you're Jimi Hendrix, you know, maybe may if someone asked Jimi Hendrix, are you a musician? He should think carefully about that. Obviously, at some level, he obviously he is a musician. But anyway, I, I took I took a question very seriously, yes. and I said, uh, "Well, most of my friends are musicians." And then she smiled and she said, "Then you're a musician." <laughs> well, <laughs> I thought about that answer a lot in the in the, in the intervening months and and years. And uh, again, it just you know, as as we're making this album, it just has this kind of air of prophecy about it you know the smiling kind of benign prophecy of all your friends are musicians man like what get going like (laughs) even if you're not a trained musician all your friends are musicians so they will support you if you want to do something in the realm of music something good will happen for sure Mm -hmm. Even if you just speak or what, like whatever it is you do, you, your friends are musicians. So, yeah. And anyway, that seems like uh, the question then would be: Is did you really get high by accident? Because it seems like this this seemingless accidental inhalation of the the hash as you were right. making your tea like seems like an accident at the moment. But 
in a way, like that's where the album began. It sounds like. Yeah, in a sense. You yeah. have this experience, I mean, and you're wandering the city. You you run into Mary Margaret O'Hare, and she asks you if you're a musician. Yeah. And you say some of my friends are, and then here we are now. Yeah, talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, uh, you know, uh, we've talked a bit about prophecy on this, uh, you know, in our in our discussion today, and. You know, there, there, there are these two ways you can look at the world, and you, you can see the world through the lens of sort of cause and effect, you know, pushes from behind, and accidents. And you can also think of things being pulled from the future a little bit, like there's, there's something intelligent in the future that's uh, like a tractor beam pulling us towards it with intelligence, and... Um, things seem to have a purpose which 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 have which have the uh, uh, you know the appearance of accident but they they become so meaningful and so linked to purpose um, that i'm very amenable to thinking about things from in terms of final causes and you know prophets who are aware of those final causes operating in our in our life well and frankly it's it's just much I don't mean to put it very, very base way. Like it's just, it's, it's much more fun that way, isn't it? To be, yes. to exactly. be going about life this way. Like, yeah, it just strikes me that just, I'd, I'd rather not be bored. And yeah. magic is fake, you know? Yeah. Oh, really? Great. That sounds, that sounds, that sounds exciting. I think I'll look yeah. into that. Well, exactly. Magic is all imaginary, you know, it's not real. Really? Excellent. That sounds fun. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and even if it is all fake and lies and sophistry and whatever else, doesn't mean it's not fun. Doesn't take away the fun factor. Well, let us play high again on the Goethe Report with Dr. P. And I was high again. Me a question, ask me a wish, grant me a wish, and ask me a question. I 
don't know which And I was high again 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 And that was High Again off Dr. P's new album, Alter Egos. We'd like to thank Dr. P for joining us this evening. You can find his album at pbali.bandcamp.com. This is the Goethe Report. Good night. <laughs>